Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're here today on a sunny, warm Tuesday in most parts of the country, except maybe the upper Midwest. And we're looking forward to a show again on 3D printing. We're going to go into a little more information on 3D printing and how manufacturers are using it and how they can use it. Before we go into that and introduce our guests, I'd like to say hello to my co-host, Lou Weitz. How are you today, Lou? A little chillier than you are. We're around 30, 32 degrees, uh, but I haven't been out since dawn, so uh, I have no idea what it's like. But thanks for asking. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I guess the cold extends to the northeast as well. <laughs> right. So, uh, Lou, what's happening in uh, – well, let's go – What share with our listeners what happened last week, and then I, I have to ask you about the news. I, I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath. <laughs> Well, um, last week, we had a last week, didn't we? Uh, we Actually, we we did have a show. uh, It was 3D printing. And uh, sorry, it was not 3D printing. It was uh, 30 under 30. uh, And we had the Thomas Net 30 under 30 millennial winners. Uh, We had uh, Wes Whitney from uh, Enterprise Products and uh, Jennifer Wolf from Masco Cabinetry. Uh, who are two dynamic millennials, uh, and frankly, the millennials uh, have a fairly bad rap in the public's eye, and uh, of being lazy, spoiled, and all kinds of other bad things. I think if you listen to the show, uh, you'll see that uh, you would have these two people on in your organization in a heartbeat. They are terrific people. They work hard. Uh, dynamic people. It's, it's certainly a, wor- a worthwhile show uh, to listen to. Um, that being said, regarding uh, news, uh, some of the news is old news, and uh, the old news is the L.A. port issue. In spite of the fact that the mainstream media ignored it until it was over, and now they're ignoring it again now that it has sort of begun again, it seems as though uh, that there are still slowdowns in the L.A. port. Uh, there are slowdowns on the East Coast port because of all the uh, smart importers and exporters who diverted shipments from L.A., diverted them to the East Coast. So now the East Coast has 25 to 35 percent increase in traffic. Uh, it seems as though that the union has not yet voted uh, on their new uh, Cadillac uh, contract. Uh, the terms of the contract are not known, and if I was them, I wouldn't want that information out either because they wouldn't get sympathy from anybody. Uh, the, uh, as I said, the slowdown is uh, still continuing, um, and uh, the White House, uh, just because they sent in a negotiator who did his job and now has left California and the slowdown continues, the White House thinks that they did their job and everything is just hunky-dory again. Well, it's not. It's not over, and uh, they still have a mess out in Los Angeles that's probably going to take three to four months to clear up. And um, that's uh, what's happening on our ports. Uh, a second item, which just happened, it's actually breaking news uh, for Manufacturing Talk uh, Radio. Uh, we have been invited to participate and to broadcast live from the Institute of Supply Management 100th Year Anniversary Conference in Phoenix, Arizona, May 3rd, 4th, and 5th. And we'll be interviewing uh, Tom Derry, CEO of the Institute of Supply Management, plus many others. Uh, last year we were there, and we actually did about 23 uh, interviews. Uh, guests, people from ISM, and the uh, co-host of that event was uh, Thomas Nett. So uh, we're we're all excited about that, and uh, we like taking the show on the road and uh, you know shaking it up a little bit. Uh, Tim. 
And let me introduce our two guests. We're going to spend some time uh, today with uh, Terry Wohlers, who's president of Wohlers Associates. And uh, he is a consultant uh, in the industry. Most of his consulting uh, over the most recent years, and Terry, you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, has been with institutional investors that represent mutual funds and hedge funds. And at the, at the bottom of the hour, Terry has another commitment, so we're going to let him go. Uh, we, we wanted to keep him for 45 minutes, but we, we haven't titillated him enough yet. Uh, and then we're going to talk with Rick Lucas, who's the chief technology officer at X1. Uh, Terry, I'm going to let you tell uh, the audience a little a bit about Wohler's Associates because no one can tell it quite as well as the president. How are you doing, Terry? Great, Tim. Uh, thanks for the the introduction and uh, and you're right we do some work with uh, institutional investors and and the investment community at large uh, however our, our primary focus really is on uh, industrial users of, of 3d printing and and also additive manufacturing uh, terms that are that are being used interchangeably and we work with a wide variety of other uh, organizations to government agencies uh, around the world and We've done some work in Washington and, and various other uh, uh, organizations, and, and really, we've never had so much fun. This is a, a great time to be in this uh, this technology that we refer to as 3D printing, uh, something that's been around for uh, more than 25 years. A lot of people don't know that, so it's just a it's a great time to to be a part of it. And Terry, what's happening in the recent and future 3D printing industry in terms of growth? Well, growth has been strong. We've seen growth of one-third, so about 32% on average for the last three years, not 2014, but 11, 12, and 13. Uh, so average growth of 32%. So if you can imagine a, a multi-billion dollar industry growing by a third every year. We haven't done the numbers yet for 2014, but we expect it will be uh, as at least as strong as the, the previous three and then that the past 25 years through 2013 we saw growth of 27% on average and i would i would challenge anybody to to name another industry that's been around for 25 years that has seen growth of uh, 27% on average for every year so it's a, it's been a, a very sound very strong industry for uh, for a long time but now it's really gaining traction like we haven't seen it in the past all the investment that's going on it seems that not everybody, but almost everybody, wants to get into it in some way. It's really, uh, it's almost, uh, well, almost daily. I, I we we receive phone calls and inquiries, and, and people you bump into, they're they're exploring ways in which they can somehow tap into this. And uh, Jerry, what types of companies are putting this 3D technology to work for them? Well, historically, we've seen the, the major OEMs in automotive, aerospace, uh, the medical industry, consumer products. They've been the uh, early adopters, even as early as the late 80s and, and uh, early 1990s. And, and they continue to, to use the technology for, for prototyping, uh, for jigs, fixtures, other types of tooling, uh, but the next frontier, and what's really exciting to us, is the use of the technology for the production of parts that are going into final product. Uh, we've seen growth like never before in that in that area, and so now more than 35% of all of the revenue generated in this industry is tied to parts that are going into final final products, predominantly from the medical and dental industries, as well as uh, aerospace, and some consumer products, too, some high-end consumer products. Uh, the, the jewelry industry, they've been uh, using this technology for uh, both custom and limited-edition type products and, and, a, and a range of other uh, applications as well. Well, let me just slip this over to uh, Rick Lucas, who's Chief Technology Officer at X1. And, Rick, I'm going to have you share with our listeners what X1 is and what it does, because I know you're involved in both the equipment itself and the service of actually printing parts. Rick, how are you? Uh, doing quite well, and thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, X1 has uh, historically been an industrial machine company. Um, Prior to 3D printing, there were other technology, machine technology that X1 was involved with, and 
and more recently, X1's been uh, is pretty much um, totally committed to the binder jetting, the 3D printing technology. There's there's a variety of ways of making parts with um, 3D technologies, and, and uh, Terry's got done quite a bit in terms of evaluating the different types of, of technologies. Our particular technology is binder jetting, and it, it's um, and I'll, I'll probably talk more about that later on about specifics of how that works. But okay. uh, X1 is a company. I'm sorry. Oh, that's uh, fine. You, you want to get into that later? That's great. Uh, but you also yeah. now you make production printers and prototype printers and, and R and D printers. Is that right? Yes, we yes we do. We have a, a number of printer technologies that we we develop from everything from prototyping to uh, high end printers that very large printers that uh, make actual um, sand molds and cores that are being used in production all over the world. Uh, we also make prototype printers the, for doing general R&D and research that's used uh, by universities as well as OEM re, uh, research departments. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, we we generally are looking at not just the printing but uh, what it takes to get a complete part to work in, in the application. So uh, in order to do that, we actually have what we call production service centers where we actually not – not just sell printers, but we actually use our printers to make parts uh, for people. And these centers um, utilize the machines that we make. And one of the obviously big advantages of, of that is that uh, we see firsthand what our customers are, are seeing in terms of our printers and what it takes to get our printers to make parts that can be used uh, in real applications. Uh, Terry, what are some of the exciting applications that you're running across? Because we're, we're beginning to see more of these uh, uh, pieces and parts that can be produced, and everybody's very curious. What are the applications that you're seeing in the technology, Terry? Well, they're they're, they're all over the place. It's uh, it, it's you know from printing living tissue, which is still mostly in R and D, but it's starting to make its way out of R and D. From that to food printing to uh, figurines to home and office accessories. Uh, those are all interesting applications. We're, like I said before, more focused on the industrial application. So I'm holding uh, a, a titanium cabin bracket for an Airbus um, A350. And this is uh, a design that holds the interior of the Sort of the interior shell of the aircraft to the 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 body of the the frame of the aircraft, and it's a very complex part, very important part. It's a structural part, in the sense that if it fails, it's not good. You know, we, we, we I wouldn't <laughs> want to be on the plane if it were to fail. And what's interesting about this is it uses about half the material and weight of a conventionally made bracket that you would machine CNC a mill out of a a billet of titanium. And so you have uh, less weight, which is good, and less material, which is also good because titanium, titanium is expensive and fuel is expensive as well. And, and so they used a method of topology optimization to optimize the strength-to-weight ratio, really letting mathematics decide where to put the material to optimize the strength and weight. And so it's a really, they, they call it a bionic part, and, and so it uh, is inspired partly by uh, you know, our, our human nature by, uh, say, bamboo, for example, and it almost looks like something you could grow. In fact, in, in some sense, you did grow this. It was grown layer by layer uh, from bottom to top. And so it's those kinds of applications where you can save incredible amounts of material and weight and and then, and then also consolidate many parts. This part in the earlier the conventional version of it was multiple pieces that were assembled. This is just one part. So there's many benefits to rethinking the design of a part or assembly and then building it, building it in this new way. Uh, yesterday, um, they had a on CNN. They had a special program called the Moonshot of the. 20, uh, five moonshots of the 21st century, uh, picking up on Kennedy's uh, moonshot uh, program of the last century. And one of the uh, moonshot uh, projects 
is 3D printing. And they had a whole segment on there, and I highly recommend anybody who is interested in 3D printing try and uh, uh, find uh, that particular program uh, on uh, television or Netflix or DVR or what have you. Um, the What they were mainly talking about was uh, medical, and they actually showed showed you the manufacturer of an ear, and uh, it it took about five minutes to manufacture an ear. Uh, they talked about a heart that in five years from now, they will have produced a heart from actual tissue from the patient and will be able to produce a heart in the surgical ward while the patient is waiting for a heart that they'll be building it alongside in, <laughs> inside the, uh, uh, the uh, printer. Uh, so it is pretty exciting, and there's some really dynamic, uh, you know, Star Trek type uh, uh, events and technology that uh, is coming out of all of this. Um, uh, Rick, uh, tell us a little bit about that kind of manufacturing, being that you're from the uh, uh, the printer side. Sure. Um, yeah, as, as you pointed out, one of the really neat things about 3D printing is it's uh, you're you're able to build parts uh, bit by bit, um, even though it's it's generally in layers. Um, we the way we glue parts together or build parts, they're it's slowly um, it's it's powder particles at a time. And uh, in nature, I mean, nature has shown that uh, organic type structures are more efficient. Um, then, you know, traditionally where you have uh, beam-type construction, you know, if you have an engineer design something, typically it, it looks more like uh, beams and panels and uh, just because of the way things are manufactured. Uh, you take that restraint away, and now all of a sudden uh, where I have the, the freedom to build whatever shape that I want, as Terry pointed out, with this idea of topology optimization, you can actually design a part that's really, uh, it's got a, a volumetric constraint, but in terms of the shape or geometry or even the, the, the small structure of that part is really not constrained in any way. And that allows you to do uh, what nature's been doing, build structures that are extremely complex and um and that is one of the beautiful things about 3D printing. It, it really is challenging uh, our manufacturing sector or the design engineers themselves um, because they don't they don't have this constraint any longer. Uh, and so that um, is very exciting. At least from our standpoint, we have a number of, of customers that uh, one of the service side of our businesses. Uh, we, we actually provide parts and consumers and, and I'll say businesses can go online, order parts, design the parts themselves, and uh, I'll go back to our production area and frequently I'll see things that just, wow, that's a great idea. And, um, it's it's actually pushing the creativity of, of engineers and, and even people now to think about what can I what can I now do? I'm no longer constrained by these conventional methods of of manufacturing, and so it, it's really exciting to see that that happening as well. That transition. Um, Just for clarity's sake, for our listeners, uh, and when I started getting into the concept of 3D printing, um, you know, I thought of it in terms of a printing press or a photostat machine or what have you. But as being a metals person coming from the metals industry and actually seeing uh, this past weekend on television, that I don't see it quite as a printing device, but I see it more as an extrusion machine. Uh, could you give us some insight on that so that the folks at home don't uh, see it as uh, – a printing press that's printing out body parts? Uh, sure. Well, I, I can take that, and uh, Rick, if you want to fill in. Uh, uh, there, there's Please. seven basic processes, umbrella processes. One is material extrusion, where you are extruding a liquid uh, 
plastic, and then that hardens when it uh, becomes uh, hits a certain temperature. Uh, and so that is a, an extrusion-type process, but there are many others like the X1 binder jetting process where you're inkjet printing a binder material onto a powder. And so that's a, that's a second. And then there's also a, a laser... Well, it doesn't have to be a laser uh, powder bed fusion process, uh, typically using a laser, but it can be electron beam or another source, uh, energy source, that that heat, heats and fuses the, the powder, uh, and that's a popular. Th those three processes are among the most popular. Um, there, there, uh, like I say, there's, there, there are four others, but so there are many different types, but what they all have in common is they're taking a 3D model, a fully closed, watertight, three-dimensional computer model, of something, some object. It slices it up and then it prints each slice layer by layer, and that's why you can take something as complex as a human skull or, or pretty much anything, slice it up digitally, and then print each layer on top of another, and and then you come up with these these uh, these shapes. And and so, uh, Rick, uh, jump in if I if I miss something here. No, you're you're absolutely right, Terry. Um, I'll just add the the extrusion technology that's real common is real common in the plastics area uh you may recall that everyone's used the old glue gun um very right. similar where you're where you're literally just building up the shape uh and, and and i'll say early on that was basically the the initial technology that that concept is kind of what uh, started a lot of this 3d printing uh ideas but as terry pointed out since then obviously uh, when you start looking at other materials other than polymers or plastics, um, where you're where you're uh, centering or fusing metal or even ceramic-like materials, then there's there's other technologies that are better suited for those types of materials. But uh, certainly, the, the one of the common methods on the at least on the plastic printers is something that would remind you of a of a glue gun or an extrusion type process. And that's by far the most popular process, too. If you look at these low-cost desktop versions that sell from uh, the lowest price one we've seen is $300, and uh, but but they're all over the place. And there's we, we think more than 300 brands now of those those 3D printers. Uh, and, and the reason those came about in, in so rapidly in recent years is because the, the basic patents, the, the fused deposition modeling, the FDM patents from Stratasys expired, and and so companies and individuals were allowed to to copy those those uh, designs and and uh, not everything but at least you know the the, uh, the claims and the patents they were you know it's now in the public domain so now you, you see them you know <laughs> they're they're everywhere we're just uh, they're you know uh, so inexpensive uh, what's great is that schools and other types of educational institutions are buying these not just one or two but equip, equipping entire laboratories with with these low-cost 3D printers, which is great. Terry, you've, uh, you've dispelled one of the myths that I had about 3D printing, and that is that it could not be used in a production environment, but you've already talked about a bracket that goes in an Airbus airplane for the airframe that's clearly a production part. What other myths and misconceptions exist about 3D printing? Yeah, well, just to uh, expand on that, uh, Airbus is, uh, has tens of thousands of parts on their aircraft. Boeing has over 100,000 parts on their different, both commercial and military aircraft. Uh, more than 100,000 hip implants made in uh, solid titanium have been uh, produced. Uh, more than 20,000 copings are made every day. A coping is a dental coping to, to make a, a crown or a bridge for a tooth restoration, more than 20,000 of those are produced every day of the week. Uh, countless uh, jewelry is made that, that consumers are buying. So there's a lot of product that's being produced in this way that most people don't know about and, quite honestly, probably don't even care because most, most uh, average consumers really don't care that, all that much, unfortunately, about manufacturing, although 3D printing is bringing uh, to light uh, the uh, you know, uh, a new way to produce things that uh, is more accessible and, and can be decentralized and and can uh, be be uh, used by people who maybe aren't as highly skilled and trained as perhaps someone working in a conventional machine shop. Uh, but Lou, I'm sorry, I I I, I didn't really answer your question. Uh, if you could <laughs> restate it, I'd appreciate it. 
Uh, it really was about the myths and misconceptions about ah. uh, 3D printing. Right, right, right. Okay, so so one is the misconception that a heart will be printed in five years. Uh, for, uh, forgive me, Lube. I, I had to. Uh, so we are often led to believe that these things will come about soon. Uh, I spoke with the leading, uh, arguably the leading expert on the subject of tissue engineering and, and regenerative uh, medicine by 3D printing. His name is Dr. Anthony Atella at, at uh, Wake Forest, uh, Wake Forest Medical Center, and and he explained. I asked him, I, you know, because he's done a lot. Of, he has a team of 400 researchers and, and physicians, and, and and so he really knows this stuff. He's done a lot of work in this area. And one misconception is that we'll be printing uh, human body parts in in a few years. Uh, we we have seen a lot of work, and there's been a lot of investment in this area. But um, I asked him, will we be able to print a human organ uh, within our lifetime? And he would not say. He could not answer it. He does. I don't think he really knows. And I don't think anybody knows. But it, I, I doubt very much it'll be five years. Maybe within uh, ten years, we'll be printing partial body parts. Maybe part of a finger. Maybe part of a, a kidney or uh, you know, some other uh, liver, whatever. But uh, we, we still have a lot of work to do before we get to the point where we're, we're producing an entire human organ. A lot of other uh, misconceptions. One is that these machines are, are very, uh, very fast. Uh, it can take for some of these industrial machines uh, more than 40 hours for production. In fact, it can take even that long just to cool down the, 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 the bed of parts inside the powder. If you have one of these large-scale machines that are filled with powder, polymer, uh, and you have large parts in them, it can take 20 to 40 hours for, for them to, to, to cool down before you can pull the parts out of the powder. If you try to accelerate the cooling, the parts will warp. And so yeah, these, these, these processes are fast compared to building you know, small quantities of parts using conventional methods like you know, molds and dyes and so forth, but they, they aren't as fast as we're led to believe. Uh, another misconception is that they're very easy to use, that you just push button, and, and, and that's the furthest from the truth. There's a lot of data preparation. The way you orient parts, do you lay them down, do you stand them up? You have support material that uh, needs to be considered. That has to be removed. In the case of metal parts, uh, you, you have metal against metal. In other words, the metal is the metal parts are attached to a build plate with metal, and you have to remove them from the build plate, which all, 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 uh, usually requires EDM or a bandsaw or something like that. Then you have to remove the support structures from the parts, and, and so there's a lot of steps. So, so they are not um, easy to use. I talked uh, for more than an hour at a, at a conference uh, recently just on the misconceptions of, of this technology, so I could go on. So you need to, need to shut me off here. <laughs> That's okay. I guess it's really useful in R&D and rapid prototyping. Uh, that's where it excels. I mean, the value of being able to get a part in your hands, a new design, a proposed design, or or a wide range of designs in your hands quickly is incredibly value, valuable. To be able to um, focus on the, the best design and then iterate and, and make it as good as it can possibly be and to, to fix all the problems and errors early in the design cycle when they're least expensive versus waiting until you get into the tooling or worse, into the manufacturing stage, finding an error and then having to, to uh, address that. It's better. And that's what this technology allows you to do is to design, iterate, get something in your hands, test it for fit, form, fit, and function, and then make the, the, the design as, as good as it can possibly be. Uh, before we uh, break for uh, a commercial, uh, Terry, and I know you have to leave unless you'd like to stay on for a bit, uh, we'd like to get your uh, website uh, information so people can reach out and uh, make contact with you. Uh, sure. The, the, the fastest by far is to Google our last name. It's Woolers, W-O-H-L-E-R-S. That's uh, company's Woolers Associates. We, we've been doing a, a an industry report for 19 years. We're currently working on the uh, 20th annual edition, and so you can uh, read about that on the web as well. So I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to be a part of this today. Thank you for joining us. 
Yep. We enjoyed having you, Terry. Uh, we uh, will invite you back in the future because we're going to stay on top of this subject. We think it's important for the manufacturing industry to really begin to learn how to use it. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we will be right back with Manufacturing Talk Radio. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio at mfgtalkradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mfgtalkradio. We're here discussing 3D printing. Is it the key to making manufacturing in America grow again with Rick Lucas, who's Chief Technology Officer at X1? Rick, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about X1 and some of the things we touched on in the first half hour of the show. In terms of your customers calling in and saying, hey, can you print a part for us, print on demand, uh, how do you serve your customers in that area, Rick? Sure. Um, we have a couple different business models. Uh, one is, uh, as you pointed out, simply people can call us direct. Um, and, and in that case, generally they'll they'll have an idea of uh, what they want in terms of a part. Um, we we generally need some kind of drawing, or we prefer to have a 3D model of of, of the part that they want made. Uh, we also have third parties that do this as well. Um, there's a number of companies that probably people are familiar with, Shapeways.com, Amazon's even. Um, You'll see that a lot of these sites are coming up now that are that are selling 3D printed parts, and um, and so we'll work through them as well. But in both cases, um, obviously we have to work with the, the the customer and get a sense of what the part looks like. Um, generally, that's a 3D model, and there's a number of programs being developed that assist consumers and companies with with making these models, as you might expect in the uh, for large companies, uh, OEMs and such, they have you know parametric modeling software programs like uh, SolidWorks and Autodesk, uh, Pro Engineer, and a number of other programs. And, and the engineers are familiar with with making these models. Uh, on the consumer side, it, it, that's obviously a lot of these programs don't exist, and, and there's a number of companies um, out there that um, who are, are trying to provide these programs for for consumers that are more User friendly and easy to um, easy to create these models, but once that once we have that, then simply uh, it's more of okay, what's the form fit function of the part? Uh, is there a certain type of material that, that you need? Uh, generally, we are we are producing metal parts. Um, 
and, that, and that's really tied to binder. Our binder jetting technology is very well suited for metal metal parts or uh, I'll say bonded parts. Um, and so once talk, we have the file, I'm let's sorry. Talk good. a little bit about that binder jetting because that's a term I haven't heard before. That's something you folks bring to the table. What is binder jetting technology? Yeah, I mean, simply uh, probably the most familiar process to people would be your inkjet printer at home, um, where you you have a, a piece of paper and and uh, in, in in that case you're jetting binder onto the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, in our case, what we're simply doing is we're we're dispensing um, instead of ink, we're dispensing binder onto a, a powder bed, and so. Um, you literally, as we alluded to in the previous hour, when you build these parts layer by layer by layer. So what you would do is once you have your model, is usually that with software it gets sliced into a bunch of uh, individual slices, and that creates this cross-sectional views. And, and so what we do is we spread a layer of powder, and then binder gets jetted on similar to what you would be able to remind you of printing onto a piece of paper. And then you would put another thin layer of powder and and then jet more binder, and you, you do that until you, you build the part. Uh, one of the advantages of this technology is you're really not limited on the material side uh, because if you, as long as you can get the material in a powdered form and you have a suitable binder that will glue that, that particular uh, powder, you can really build any type of part. And the advantage of, of binder jetting is the speed and size of parts that you can do with this technology. I mean, there's a lot of pluses and minuses um, with the different technologies, and I would just encourage our listeners to, to really um, take a look at the different technologies that are out there. And what drives the selection of, of probably the, the technology you're interested in would be obviously the price you're willing to pay for your part, the type of material that you you need for your application, um, and then certainly the the performance. What type of performance do you need out of out of that part? Um, but but one of the advantages of binder jetting is it's fast. It can be done quickly. As if you've seen people print your printers print on a piece of paper, that can be quite fast. Um, and I say fast, as Terry pointed out earlier, um, 3D printing. Uh, fast is a relative term, but in, in comparison with other, I'll say, 3D printing technologies, binder jetting is generally more cost-effective and the most cost-effective and the fastest printing method of, of the different technologies. One of the disadvantages is that you have a glued product now. So it reminds you of just, uh, you can see the shape of the part, but now I have to get that into a solid form. So it, you know, if you're if people are familiar with powder injection molding or, or metal injection molding industry, where you have glued powder, very similar. This is a really a powder metallurgy printing technology. So you have to center that afterwards, and so you take that green form, and then it goes through a process where you apply heat to to get that metal to center. Um, now there are obviously uh, that that particular technology area has been around for a very very long time, so it's a very well understood process. And uh, again, one of the advantages of binder jetting is it is like it's a powder metallurgy process. So it's it's uh, most manufacturers and, and OEMs that are familiar with powder metallurgy are very comfortable with with this particular technology. And have a lot of the equipment and processes already in place. Um, we uh, in, in our factory here, we, we literally produce thousands of parts um, quite uh, frequently. You go in the back and you'll see literally hundreds of thousands of parts that are going out. And what we've had to do there is go to more of a continuous furnace. Um, you can process these these powders in either a vacuum furnace or a, a continuous furnace would remind you of like a pizza oven where you're you're literally setting your parts on a conveyor and then you're taking the parts off on the back end of, of the conveyor. Um, so 
again, a key for binder jetting is obviously it's fast. You can do very large parts, and then the flexibility with materials. You really have a number of material options there. Um, and when you think about gluing powder together, um, that's a fairly uh, simple process. So as long as you've got the product in powder form and you've got a binder that will stick it together, then generally our process will work for, for almost any material. Uh, Rick, and you've been mentioning all types of materials from plastics to metals to titanium and so on. I haven't heard anybody talk about glass. Is glass yeah. uh, a, a product that could be produced in the same method? Yeah, in fact, uh, we, we've actually produced glass. Um, yeah, v- simply, uh, again, you have to have the, the glass in a powdered form, but it's, it's simply glued together and, and, you know, similar to how you would fire glass and more of a kiln type of a process. Um, so glass and ceramics are, are two materials that we, we actually print a lot of. Um, related to that, uh, we also, probably the number one material that we print above more than anything else is sand. Um, if folks that are familiar with the casting industry, which is a very large industry, um, there's an almost, let's say, almost everything that, that we, uh, that you use in your day-to-day life, there's, there's cast parts and those are everything from your automobiles to, uh, about any type of transportation vehicle that you get into, um, it has cast parts in it. And the way those are made are with uh, with sand molds and cores. And um, we do a lot of, of, of printing of the molds and cores. One of the, the big advantages over conventional methods is that uh, generally you have a, used to be the old wood patterns are still quite, it's quite common where they'll make these patterns from wood or, or they'll print them out of a plastic of some kind, and then they mold the sand around them, uh, where we simply, with our printers, uh, print just print the sand directly. And um, we have very large machines that will do that. Um, we actually recently announced a, a brand-new machine called the Exerial machine that prints um, um, in, in production in a production line. So the, the vision of that machine is literally it would be embedded into uh, an automotive or high-volume application where you literally are printing these molds out and then they're they're going down and then you're casting metal into them. So uh, obviously sand, glass, uh, ceramics, these are all, all materials that uh, are very well suited for the binder jetting technology. In terms of uh, size, uh, you say that you can produce uh, very large parts. What about the thickness, uh, a wall thickness of a particular part? What What's the thinnest that typically you can go? Yeah, it um, generally what what limits how thin you can go is is your powder itself, um, and powders vary in size. Uh, the smallest powder that we print is, is down to about 10 micron, which which is quite small. Um, generally, our, our layer thicknesses are about 100 micron, um, and you're generally limited to, in terms of wall thicknesses, uh, a couple hundred micron is quite common, uh, is, is not a problem. I mean, obviously, it depends on how long the, the wall thickness, how long it is, um, you know, how it connects to, to Certain features of, of of the part, but um, it, it's it's not uh, difficult to do. Um, you know, a couple hundred micron wall thicknesses uh, on the directly printed side. Now, now printing it is one thing. The, the most difficult thing for with binder jetting is maintaining um, the geometry after it goes through its centering step. So as you imagine, I've got this glued metal powder, and and now I've got these features and and maybe a thin wall of some kind, and now it has to go into a furnace. And as that metal heats up and begins centering, um, the the challenge is is controlling that in such a way where it doesn't distort or it doesn't slump. And and so we've actually... um, be, spend all, as much time working on what happens after it comes out of the printer 
as it is actually developing the printing technology to print the materials. And, and of course, as, as the parts get larger and larger, that challenge becomes greater and greater. Well, let me ask you a question about uh, the glued uh, powders. Uh, without necessarily going into a furnace to harden the material, can you take the uh, part that you've now glued the powder and can you actually coat that or chrome it or paint it or whatever kind of surface condition, and will it preserve uh, the integrity of the part? Yeah, without the without doing centering, um, there the, the main use for that product is generally some kind of tooling or mold of some kind. I, I talked about sand molds and cores for casting. And, and coating that is, is actually a quite common thing to do. Um, there's obviously, um, it improves the surface finish. It uh, can provide uh, benefits in terms of, of chemistry, as you know, if you're pouring hot metal against it. Um, and, and certainly on the directly printed and after we center parts, uh, all the conventional methods that, that you would use and with conventional manufacturing in terms of plating, whether that be with gold or nickel or patinas, um, we provide those as well. So the parts that we make in our service centers, we offer not just the, the parts themselves, but we also provide surfacing options in terms of, uh, of surface finish and, and as well as different plating options. Uh, particularly, this is of great interest in, in the art um, area of art where they're looking for something more attractive, uh, but even on the on the manufacturing side, uh, if there's coatings that are related to durability and maybe corrosion resistance, um, and and we utilize those coatings as well. Rick, I'm on the, your website, which for our listeners is exoneex1.com, and I'm in your resources section. I'm just looking at materials. And beyond silica sand, I see 420 stainless steel with a bronze matrix, a 316 stainless steel with a bronze matrix, and regular 316 stainless, 17-4 stainless, which is, I know Lou's company's had a lot of experience with 17-4, uh, alloy 625, alloy 718. These are all, all uh, materials that our sponsor, All Metals and Forge Group, uses for forged parts. Uh, in terms of large forged parts, are, are are any of the printers capable of producing large parts uh, that would rival a forging in terms of physical properties or chemistries, uh, Rick? Um, certainly, in terms of properties, um, they've been we've been able to demonstrate on small scale. When I say small scale. Uh, we have a number of different print platforms. Our, our Mflex, for example, will print parts up to uh, 10 by 10 by 16 inches. That's a nominal size. Uh, the largest metal machine that, that we produce does parts uh, 16 by 16 by 30. Um, and, and in those cases, um, we've got like the you you mentioned the matrix materials those the 420 mm -hmm. with the with the bronze and the 316 with the bronze infiltrant those are not going to be uh certainly not have the properties of a, a forged uh 420 or or 316 um those materials are however very effective in applications where there's high erosion um, I can tell you in, in like the oil and gas industry where there's there's uh, certain applications where there, uh, erosion is, is a major problem. Uh, matrix materials can very, be very effective, in fact, more effective than some of your, the steel alloys that are, uh, say, generally used in those applications. Um, the the Inconel 625, the, the, the solid single, single alloy material there, um, is uh, it's not currently the the properties are not quite as good as forged, um, but they are they're actually uh, still quite they're they're quite good, and certainly we're working on improving those. This is one of the challenges when you talk about 3D printing. Um, 
when people see, okay, that you're printing Nakin L625, people naturally assume, okay, I can print big parts and I can have the same properties as rot and, and uh, there's there's no other issues that I have to be concerned about. And this is something I think people got we have to be careful with is because um, there's a lot of work that has to be done to qualify these materials in a given application. Everything from, uh, I'll say, you know, different types of mechanical testing to validate them, uh, corrosion testing. Um, I will tell you that we are making Nakin L625. Uh, we're able to make that at 100% density. It has great material properties. Would it replace a large forged part? Um, right now, mainly we are focused on, I'll say, smaller parts. And I say smaller, something that's you know less than, let's say, 8 inches by 8 inches by 8. Um, a big part is it, it'll be some time before uh, we're able to make uh, really large parts with that with that material. And, and really what limits that is is more of the slumping distortion that I alluded to earlier when I go into a furnace and being mm-hmm. able to maintain its shape. Um, but certainly material properties is something very important to us, and um, and that's why you also notice on our website we talk about qualified materials and what mm-hmm. we call printable, printable materials. And what we're differentiating there, if it's qualified material, we have a formal data sheet that will tell you what you can expect in terms of material properties from that alloy. And, and generally those materials we offer in one of our service centers. You could actually come to X1 and buy that product uh, with that material and and have some assurance about what you could expect in terms of material properties. What we call printable materials... Yes, go ahead. I was going to ask, um, uh, are you familiar with uh, AMS specifications? Uh, Yes, we are. Uh, In fact, most... I was, what I was going to ask was, can you tests, produce to those specifications? Um, in, in some cases, yes. I mean, um, we are we, certainly all the testing that's done on these materials are are done to ASTM standards, and um, in, in certain alloys are very well suited for this technology. In fact, you can you can basically get the equivalent properties. In other alloys, um, we we cannot at this point in time, and, and so there's more work that's got to be done. Um, I also just want to mention that um, historically, X1 has primarily worked on what we call the, these matrix materials, the 420 stainless uh, infiltrated with bronze and the 316 infiltrated with bronze. It's only in the last two years where we've really made a concerted effort to go after some of these more common alloys and do full density. And and so um, a lot of this is just, it's not really a limitation of the technology as much as it is just uh, spending the time to go through the development work. So uh, printing enough samples up and, and enough parts up to get all the data that you need to, to, to say this is an ASM, is qualified to this ASM standard. Um, there's just the work there just still has to be done. But certainly we've been able to show that we get good properties. We we can do full density, um, single alloy, common alloy materials with the technology and, and get good properties. Rick, one well, of the things that we've been talking about on the show, kind of a theme that runs through the show, is making manufacturing cool or at least trying to get the point across to the millennials that manufacturing has got some cool applications. And certainly this is a really cool application. What is X1 doing with education with colleges and universities? Yeah, it, that's um, we actually have a group within X1 um, called X-Tech, and uh, we, we, we have a number of programs where we go out and, and we're, we're partnering with universities. Um, we certainly have uh, provide tours to um, educational groups whenever there's an interest to come through and, and see the technology. Um, but we have a very aggressive program in reaching out to um, students and, and educating them about our technology. We have a um, 
a new what we call design center that's being created right now that that really is going to be educating and training people on. Uh, we've talked about you know design for additive manufacturing where we get engineers and and young people thinking about uh, being creative uh, on the design side so you can uh, create these new uh, optimized designs and. And we certainly are reaching out to uh, students and, and colleges, and and, um, and and we'll be working with them as we as we develop this this new center here at X1. But uh, yeah, reaching out to the young people and and getting them uh, familiar with our technology uh, with 3D printing is is certainly a priority for us. Um, there's a, a a group out there I'm familiar with America Makes. Is a, uh, a government-sponsored uh, group, uh, and and which has obviously been a champion in, in this area in terms of, of getting the word out about 3D printing, and we are very active uh, within America Makes, and and certainly um, support uh, what we're trying to what they're trying to do, and and obviously it's a major uh, objective for us as well as a company to um, reach out to students and and get them familiar with this technology. So that they Rick, can use you, it. Uh, Rick, are you familiar with uh, Manufacturing Day? It's held the first Friday in October, where uh, thousands of companies open up their company for tours to show young people, students, teachers, and so on what's going on in manufacturing. And uh, uh, Manufacturing Talk Radio has been a sponsor of that program as well, and we actually have uh, live uh, broadcasts uh, with the three partner associations that are uh, affiliated with this, and I would certainly think that this would be uh, an outstanding uh, way to get your message out. It's called Manufacturing, and the website is manufacturingday.com, and if you'd like to hear more yeah. about it uh, from us, I'd be happy to talk to you off the air about it. Sure, no, that'd be great. I think actually we participated last year, and um, very great program, and and uh, I think it's it's great what you're trying to do there. It's uh, it's a fabulous program, and they actually had over a hundred thousand uh, people that visited manufacturing plants in all fifty states. So it was quite a success last year, and I think last year was the third year that they did it. And uh, President Obama actually made it an official uh, uh, day of recognition for manufacturing. So. Now, Rick, we've got about a minute and a half before we begin to to wrap up the show. What's the most either oddball or strange or interesting application that's come across uh, X1 that you guys have had to tackle? Wow, probably the most interesting ones I can't talk about. <laughs> um, I'll just say there's a lot of uh, things, problems we have solved for uh, for manufacturers that, uh, and we always joke about this at X1, the most interesting stories and the, most, the coolest things that we've done uh, generally we're not allowed to talk about. Um, but it just goes to show you the, the value of a, a large number of OEMs out there that, that uh that see the value in the technology for solving some of these challenging problems um uh, outside of that i will say that uh, we have a lot in the consumer business we have a lot of unique designs come through and uh in uh, a lot of times you know what the parts are and a lot of times you don't um it it's obvious people are are creating these uh solutions and they're 3d dependent Printing enables them to go out and, and do some prototyping, and they're, they're testing these testing these parts on you know, everything from probably bicycles to who, who knows what else. Um, but it, it's it's really uh, I can't put my finger on one single thing, but I will tell you that I see very unique things come through here um, quite frequently, all the time. Well, Rick, uh, this has certainly been uh, enlightening and uh, terrifically interesting, and uh, you and I will have a conversation uh, once we're off air. Uh, i just like to mention to our listeners that uh, in about uh, one hour, this show, if you didn't hear the whole show, will be a podcast on mfgtalkradio.com, 
and uh, we're going to be wrapping up in a minute, so I'll, I'll flip this back to uh, Tim. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. We've enjoyed having Terry Wolders on from Wolders Associates and Rick Lucas on from X1. Certainly, X1 is a resource for manufacturers. That wraps us up for Manufacturing Talk Radio today, and we'll be back again with you next week. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.